I wish I could tell you guys that I was getting into something interesting, but I'm not getting into anything interesting. I'm just exhausted. Do you feel exhausted? Yeah, all the time. Completely exhausted. I mean, I realize that having a kid is exhausting, so that's part of it. I realize I'm, you know, I turned 40 recently, so that's that's obviously part of it. But then there's a third part of it that's a mystery to me, and it makes me feel like something is dying inside of my body. Like, I don't know where the problem is, but it's causing me fatigue. I just don't have the stamina that I used to have. You know, I used to, like, do <laughs> shit. Remember? You know, um, have I told you about um, the male vitality supplements that I'm selling. I have some HGA. You know, I was thinking about switching up my program. Uh, I've got about a couple hundred dollars a month that I budget for this kind of thing. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you have a nootropic stack? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I mean, I have in the past. I don't, I don't, I'm not even really sure what it is. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. I just, it's, I'm sure it's like, boost your tea, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, sounds like you need to boost your tea. I do need to boost my tea. How do I boost my tea? Uh, I think you you start by watching Infowars. <laughs> and that will lead you into the product. You think Alex are, Jones is going to help me out of this chronic fatigue pattern that I'm in? Yeah, he's he's got pills for everything. That dude is an energetic man, I'll tell you that. That's true. I mean, you can't you can't deny you got to give him that. He's uh, vital. <laughs> yeah, he has vitality. Vigor of him. I don't know. I gotta crack the code on this. Maybe I gotta make some dietary. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm trying to be healthy. So you think it's diet? You think that the reason no you feel you the reason you feel fatigued is not uh, a year like a year and a half of a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah. No. I. Uh, I think that it, I. I think that it's something way, way more serious than diet. I'm just <laughs> trying to push back against it in whatever ways I know how. You know. Yeah, yeah. Trying to eat right. Trying to exercise. I just don't have the energy to like work as hard as I used to. And that's yeah. and it's like. That's kind of frustrating. Well, what's the point? You know? Well, that's a fucking loser's <laughs> attitude. <laughs> Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640-ish, mostly anonymous... American billionaires. Yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. I'm Joe. I'm Chad. And it's great to be here. Thank you for joining us. This yeah. is, uh, I think, our 31st episode. We like to count them off here as we go. Yeah. So lots happened in the world since uh, our last episode, but we're not going to talk about any of it unless it's related to billionaires <laughs> because yeah. we stay focused on the show. We are about to do billionaires in the news. Uh, yeah, well, that's what we do. News. There is some big news, and uh, now's the time to do it. Let's just uh, let's get right into it now. Okay. Billionaires in the news. As uh, you probably noticed, uh, the billionaires are all going to space this summer. Uh, it's the summer of space for billionaires. Well, did you know that this was going to culminate in no. this moment? No, it seemed kind of weird, and like there was very little buildup, uh, and it just seemed like. Branson and Bezos were kind of like uh, trying to be the first one and, and maybe like 
Branson kind of snaked Bezos in the uh, by uh, setting his launch date earlier. You think they were talking behind closed doors about their different missions? <laughs> I don't think so. Because like, they're not. I mean, first of all, they're not missions. Uh, they didn't do anything. <laughs> right? Like, there's no objective except to like fly <laughs> up there and come back down. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Branson didn't even have a rocket. Branson had a, just an airplane that goes really high, right? Like, I mean, it just looks like a. So yeah. that somehow diminishes this. Well, they didn't go to space. They they went to sub or suborbital space, right? Like, which is just like really high in the sky, right? Like, it's not. It's not quite space, or you know, like I, I, I thought know. space was when you get out of the realm of being able to see the sky, and it just all becomes dark and starry. Yeah, I mean that's like a I don't know that's one def- that's a phenomenological definition of what space is. It's when you like when you're not experiencing sky anymore. Yeah, I like that, but I don't know I don't know what the official designation of where space begins is. For me, uh, a space flight, you know, sort of it's like you know unless it's like 1966, like I think a space flight kind of implies orbit. Uh, mm. Like that's you know. Um, Anyway, neither of them went into orbit, although Bezos did have a rocket, uh, a giant penis shaped rocket, uh, which is crazy. Because You did show me the picture of that, and that yeah. is an accurate description. As it turns if out. you look at the Feather logo for Blue Origin, which is his space company, it also looks like a penis. And he looks like a penis, <laughs> like everything. It's like it's just penis on penis on penis with Bezos. I don't know. I don't know what's going on with him, but uh, it's a weird branding concept. It is really weird. Uh, I mean, it couldn't the rocket ship could not look more like a penis. If if that was your express goal to design a rocket ship that looked exactly like a penis, like uh, that, like you couldn't do a better job. Are people talking about this on Twitter everywhere? I think it's so I think it's so obvious that it's like it's not even worth making a joke about. It's just like, oh, yeah, like. Um, it has a big round head on it. Like, <laughs> it's like, I mean, there's no, there's no other interpretation. It's like, I guess that's why it's like not that funny is because everyone's interpretation of what it looks like is the same. It's just like, oh, you made a big dick rock, cock rocket, I guess you can call it. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, what I thought we could do is they both delivered remarks, uh, when they came back down from, uh, pseudo space. Um, and I thought we could listen to some of them. Um, you know, I saw Bezos's remarks live or many of them. Really? I texted, well, I texted you when it was happening. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he would, he did a press conference for like an hour. Like, yeah. Um, we're not, yeah, but we're I'd be happy to revisit some of this. Yeah. We're not going to listen to all of it. We're just going to listen to a clip or two. Um, uh, but we'll start with Branson. Um, cause he only, he only talked for a couple of minutes. He, uh, uh, his whole thing uh, was that he is trying to democratize space and make it available to everybody. So let's uh, hear what he has to say. So uh, the mission statement that I wrote inside my spacesuit was to uh, turn the dream of space travel into a reality for uh, my grandchildren who, who are here, for your grandchildren, uh, and for many people who are alive today, for everybody. Um, and having flown to space, I can see even more clearly how Virgin Galactic is the space line for Earth. Um, we're here to make space more accessible to all, all, and we want to turn the next generation of dreamers into the astronauts of uh, today and tomorrow. Um, we've all, of us on this stage, have just had 
the most extraordinary experience, and we'd love it if a number of you can have it too. Um, and with that in mind, I have some news. Um, so today, Virgin Galactic is thrilled to announce that we have partnered with Amaze uh, to open space for, for everyone. Um, so if you go to amaze.com, I think, um, uh, slash space to enter, um, uh, you have a chance to go to space. Um, and every donation supports uh, a charity called Space for Humanity. Uh, and you'll be entered into the Amaze uh, sweepstakes for the chance to win not one, but two seats aboard one of the first commercial Virgin Galactic space flights. There's a, there's a number of amazing things about that, yeah. speaking of Amaze. Um, you, yeah, well, okay, so you thought that he said Amaze, uh, the, the common word that we all uh, know so well. Uh, I, I tried to go to amaze.com, uh, which is what he, he verbally pointed us toward. And that actually uh, took me to one of those like warnings that this is not a safe site. I think their security certificate expired. But, and it took me a minute to find it. It's not amaze. It's omaze. Uh, he's just not enunciating. Uh, so you have to go to omaze.com. Um, okay. And turns out that what omaze is, is a raffle site. And you go on there and buy raffle tickets to win a space flight. There's only one winner and you can bring one guest. Uh, and each- <laughs> so by everyone, he means one. Well, he means one <laughs> person and plus guest. Yes. And uh, each ticket's a dollar. OK, so but it gets more interesting than that, uh, because the scam is that 80 percent of the money from the raffle tickets go to charity, okay. uh, which sounds good. However, uh, if you, you read the fine print. Uh, the charity is called Space for Humanity, um, which is an organization that calls itself a citizen astronaut program. Uh, and its <laughs> idea, it's so dumb. Its idea is that it wants regular people to go to space, not for any, not to like, just because they think that seeing the Earth from space so profoundly changes your perspective that you will come back with the realization that all of humanity is one and we're all together on spaceship earth uh and like other hokey bullshit from the 1970s and uh and like there are zero specifics about how they're going to accomplish this what they're doing who they're working with they have sent zero astronauts so far it is not clear that they have any sort of program with people in it but uh but i just want to emphasize the high level of bullshit that space for humanity is engaging in here because once you get through omaze uh, that raffle site omaze is doing a raffle right but 80 percent of the raffle money goes to charity uh the rest of it i guess goes to omaze space for humanity is just another raffle where you apply to be an astronaut and if you get chosen then space for humanity uses that 80% of the original raffle money plus whatever other you know money they raise to buy a seat on a spaceship and i would like to emphasize that they don't have any specific spaceships in mind they just made this partnership with virgin galactic i guess but like Nobody else. So, like, there's maybe one plane that you can get a seat on. Like, I mean, it is. So, it is. Am I? Am I? Am, am I understanding this right? Is this a raffle uh, pyramid scheme? Yes. <laughs> there is. Well, I mean, there's definitely a pyramid of raffles. <laughs> 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 it's the, you call it dumb i call it kind of genius <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway 
Our next uh, space billionaire is uh, Jeff Bezos. Um, I think, you know, the fun, the the immediately funny thing about the Bezos video is that he's wearing a cowboy hat and a jumpsuit. And, you know, it really gives you the idea that um, that like Mark Zuckerberg, he seems to have missed out on a lot of experiences that boys typically have, like fantasizing about being a spaceman or, uh, you know, or a cowboy or whatever. And so they're kind of living out these fantasies by spending millions and millions, if not billions of dollars on them. So, I mean, like that, that part is funny. And a lot of people drew attention to the cowboy hat. Um, but I mean, everybody freaked out at both of them, mainly Bezos, because he's so much richer. Um, uh, he, he and and also he remarked when he came down, he was like, thank you, Amazon customers and Amazon workers. You paid for this. <laughs> well, the thing that I noticed when I was watching the, the press conference live is how much he talked about back when I was developing Amazon. Like, it's still like something that he has to talk about all the It's like, we know who the fuck you are, man. (laughs) He's like, but what I learned, what I learned when I started Amazon is you got to start small and dream big. I forget what it is. Maybe you have the clip, but it was something along those lines. It was just like, dude. Yeah. So everybody got mad. Everybody was like, this is a huge waste. You're, you know, this is terrible, Uh, especially the comment about uh, Amazon customers and workers. Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, had a, a tweet that kind of summed it up well. Uh, she wrote, yes, Amazon workers did pay for this with lower wages, union busting and a frenzied and inhumane workplace. Uh, and then, of course, it came out today that Amazon cheated during the union vote in Bessemer, Alabama. And so uh, they, they're going to, ha- you know, I think they literally did uh, union busting. I mean, they did it in a whole bunch of other ways, but also illegal ways, it turns out now. So um, the thing, though. You know, I, I think fewer people talked about, but that I find equally offensive uh, and tone deaf was him going on and on about how he observed the fragility of the Earth's atmosphere and how we have to protect Earth and the climate and all of this shit. Like, can you as you're torching fossil fuels yeah, to hurdle you yourself unnecessarily, the carbon cost of starting a vanity <laughs> space program, like just for yourself, just for because you can. I'm going to do a space program. What is that the, would be. An, oh, I would love to do that calculation. Yeah. Or have somebody do that. There could for be me. nothing like it's, uh, I don't know, like a hundred coal plants. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's like an insane amount of waste. A related thought. You know, yeah. I sent you that news article. It's in the news. I think we can talk about this. Uh, uh, the, the headline. So they did some study, ran some calculation according to whatever models they were developing. They determined that every American living an average American lifestyle winds up resulting in the death of three oh, yeah. people around the planet. Yeah, yeah. I wonder I wonder what that would be for a billionaire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well that's the thing, right? Like once you have what the the uh carbon cost and pollution cost is for a single person, right? Like you can um it's just simple multiplication, man. Yeah, exactly, right? Like uh, you know, you can you can figure that out. It's it's quantifiable. But uh, I mean, a lot, you know, the the, the space stuff uh, we had to talk about, but a lot of other stuff has happened in the news since the last episode. Uh, they're going to have to give short shrift to one of the things. And, and we're going to have to sort of unpack this in a future episode, uh, a huge ProPublica report revealing exactly how much the wealthiest Americans pay in taxes. 
Uh, and surprise, surprise, it's basically zero. Less than we do. Yeah, way less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I just want, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a big report. And uh, and I think that the next time we deal with uh, tax or tax avoidance uh, stuff, we'll deal with that. Um, also, a very weird story that happened right after we recorded the last episode. Uh, junkyard billionaire Willis Johnson paid the bill for South Dakota to send National Guard troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. That is uh, like, yeah, oh, uh, gives new meaning to the term public-private partnership. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's like scary, you know. Okay, so, you know, this stupid uh, guy who doesn't know what to do with his money paid a bunch of it to a governor who needed a... Uh, photo op, right? Like she needed some good press or, or one, you know, and, and so she wants to show that she's a big Trump person or whatever. And, and she's a big border person, you know, she, they only ended up sending 50 troops and they did not have a defined mission, right? Like they're just, they're just like, go patrol the border, right? Like, I mean, it's completely faked. It was a publicity stunt, but it sets a precedent, right? Like that we now have a recent concrete precedent of a really rich guy saying, I would like this law to be enforced, please better. Uh, and hiring the federal government essentially to go enforce a law that he wants enforced. That's brazen. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's very scary, right? Like it's really interesting to think about because it's like we have all of these laws on the books, but the enforcement of them is really flexible based on what individual communities are, are concerned about to have individuals come in and flex muscles so that they get to decide what gets enforced is a whole new level. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, you know, if there is a, if this is not a one-off and there's a second example, I think that that's like the time to start getting anxious about it as a thing that people are doing. So We'll just kind of put a pin in that as well. Uh, last, uh, Joe, I know you saw the uh, Mark Zuckerberg 4th of July video where he's riding his tiny surfboard again, a little motorized surfboard and holding a big flag. He looked gorgeous in that picture. He did. I mean, there's no denying that. And, and you know, however much <laughs> I want to make fun of him, I do have to admit that he looked he was a, a gorgeous and beautiful in that in that shot. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it's just another piece of like evidence in my theory that Mark Zuckerberg is running the most sophisticated psyop on uh, the United States to convince us that he doesn't have any personal information worth stealing. Right. So like, I mean, this started when like his photos got hacked or whatever, and it was all just him like, uh, you know, doing a backyard grill. Like there's just not, not a single thing on one of the richest people <laughs> in the world's phone that was interesting to anybody. It didn't even register as a story, right? Like he's doing all this on purpose, right? Like just that, like these, uh, uh was it the green, did he, basically. did he have the green egg? I think he had the green egg. Yeah. He had the green egg and he was using sweet baby rays. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, just doing like regular barbecue. Um, so that's, I guess that's the news story. Mark Zuckerberg is a regular man, um, doing regular things. The following is a creative reimagining of billionaire hedge fund manager Stephen A. Cohen's experience as he waited for celebrity chef Guy Fieri, uh, who he had rented like a birthday clown for $100,000. 
Uh, they would go on that day to recreate Stephen Cohen's favorite episode of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Uh, all the characters I mention are actually close personal friends with Guy Fieri. I whip my Oakley blades off my face in astonishment and violently throw them into the sea. The biggest carnival cruise ship I've ever seen just crossed over the horizon, and I can hear the faint but still epic opening piano riff of Van Halen's 1991 mega hit right now. I whip my backup pair of Oakley blades out of my cargo shorts pocket and put them on the back of my head like a second pair of eyes. I squint hard at the ship with my regular eyes and notice it is quickly approaching the very dock on which I stand. Sammy Hagar's voice drops into the mix and I can tell instantly it's a live performance. At that moment, I know it's really happening. This is it, the Cabo Wabo Express. I begin to mentally and spiritually prepare myself by doing push-ups and visualizing my totem image, the 1996 Anna Nicole Smith pin-up calendar, month of September. I do 10 push-ups and get back on my feet. By that time, the ship has gotten close. Carrot Top is standing on the deck, shaking his massive head in disappointment. Come on, bro, 10 more. Let's get another set in, he says. But before I can oblige him, which would be extremely easy for me, Buddy Velastro, the cake boss, and the lead singer of Smash Mouth, Steve Harwell, appear on Razor Scooters, executing a flawlessly synchronized trick routine that goes on for 10 to 15 minutes. Eventually, they skid to a stop at exactly the same moment, flanking Carrot Top. Steve Harwell says, Welcome home. Oh yeah, and hey, you're an all-star now. I board the ship and just ignore that he said the line from the song incorrectly. I hug all of them, keeping our clasped hands between our chests to prevent anything that could possibly be misconstrued. The three of them are suddenly holding shots of tequila, seemingly produced from thin air. I drink them all instantly. It's fucking nothing to me. We begin to high-five each other over and over, just hella vibing. And then, from behind me, I hear a booming yet squeaky voice, a voice as familiar to me as the scent of dried donkey sauce on an Affliction t-shirt. I hear that voice say, Hast thou sufficiently purified thyself to enter the kingdom of Guy, a.k.a. the Fieriverse, the fantastical realm known to most as Flavortown? I kneel and bow my head. Yes, chef, I say. Guy takes off his Oakleys and looks me in the eye. Y'all ready for this? He says in exactly the same rhythm as the song and smiles with just the corner of his mouth. I smile back as he places his Oakley wraparounds on my face. They are heavy. I can tell they are made of solid gold. Pink gold. Hell yes, I say. Fuck yes. That was brilliant, Chad. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That must have taken a lot of your creative energy the last few months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, it took me uh, all morning. Um <laughs> But it's true. It's true that that uh, Stephen A. Cohen, uh, or at least it's reported uh, that Stephen A. Cohen paid Guy Fieri $100,000 to recreate an episode of Tyner's Drive-Ins and Dives in Connecticut. I assume that over the course of the this segment, you're going to unpack this relationship a little bit more. And and not really. Um, uh, I mean, maybe maybe to some degree, but uh, um. That's what you'd think Stephen Cohen is basically like if you were going to just sort of imagine his general aesthetic. 
I don't. I mean, okay, so I mean, I guess I'll say a couple of things. One, I don't really like when people make fun of Guy Fieri because it tends to be, it tends to, like, to make fun of him because of his taste, right? Like, uh, and so it's this, this kind of like uh, snobbish uh, punching down, oh, look at this, you know, look at this guy's bad taste. Uh, it turns out that Guy Fieri is a big <laughs> a bad guy. It's like really homophobic and misogynistic. And, and so it's okay to make fun of him. You sent me a video of him like... His his hairdresser going. Nuts oh yeah, on him. yeah. We'll post that video. Uh, TMZ caught him having a kick fight with his hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't seem like you're punching down to a dude. No, who no. Would... <laughs> um, I, uh, the thing that's interesting to me is that like is the way that the characters all fit together in a in a social network of like-minded people with similar styles, right? Like they like the the affliction t-shirts and um like I always imagine them all wearing short sleeve button-down shirts that are black with like red flames coming up from the bottom. It's basically a Danny McBride universe. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I think that's I think that's true. Um so Cohen doesn't really rock that style. Uh, that's not that's not his thing. I've only seen him with uh, collars and button button ups. Yeah, but the connection that I want to make to to Cohen is more that hedge funds work a lot like Guy Fieri's posse, right? Like that they're made up of a network of like minded people who are. Uh, who have similar attitudes <laughs> about certain things, especially. I think we need laws. to. I think we need to back up. Like <laughs> yeah. you know who Steve Cohen is. I know who Steve Cohen is. I think many people in our audience will, but some of them may not. Yeah, and I let think me, we let need me, to like set this up. Let me back up, and so I'll get to the I'll get to the Fieri uh, connection uh, in a minute. Um, so yeah, I mean, hedge funds are not a new thing for this show. We've talked about them before. Um, the thing that we haven't really talked about is insider trading. Uh, I think it's come up. It's come up, but I don't think we've, it hasn't been the focal point of an episode. Right. So that's, that's mainly what I want to talk about today because Stephen A. Cohen, he was a hedge fund manager. Uh, he ran SAC Capital, uh, just his initials. And he, a whole bunch of people got uh, indicted for insider trading uh, at his company. He did not. He escaped prosecution, uh, but he was for Slippery sale. guy. He is slippery. He had to pay a whole bunch of fines and uh, he was barred from managing other people's money for two years. Uh, nothing, nothing happened to him. He just opened another company and now he's investing again. Um. But it was the biggest insider trading case in history. I mean, it was it was huge. Uh, but before we get to that, there's like a couple of things I'd like to remind the audience about hedge funds. Hedge funds are investment funds, uh, and they can invest in basically anything. You can even have there's even like different kinds of hedge funds that dif that specialize in different kinds of investments. You and I, Joe, however, cannot invest in hedge funds. And why is that, Chad? Well, to invest, we're not sophisticated enough to invest <laughs> in a hedge fund. You have to be what the SEC calls a sophisticated investor. And sophistication is a, a highly quantifiable uh, metric. It just means that you have more than one million dollars to invest. Um, the completely arbitrary number of one million dollars uh, for some reason <laughs> is what you need to invest to enter into a hedge fund. 
and you can also invest in hedge funds if you're an institutional investor, like a university endowment or a, a pension fund or something like that. But if you're an individual, you have to already be rich. So, I mean, by design, then hedge funds are only for rich people. And the, the rationale is that only people who can afford to lose a lot of money should be exposed to the kind of risk that hedge funds deal in, right? So it's it's a way of um, it's a way of the SEC kind of like uh, protecting the small time uh, investor, right? Like the the SEC is like uh, you know uh, being paternalistic in in their but while while also like nodding and sort of sucking up to the rich investors by calling them sophisticated. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> you know? I mean, right? they could have called them anything. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's sophisticated. Give me a break. So, well, you know, if hedge funds are so risky, Joe, why would I want to invest in them? Probably because there's a potential for a large return. That's right. Um, what's very funny, though, is that there there is this uh, big famous study uh, that uh, from the period of 1994 to 2021, all major hedge funds combined and averaged uh, underperformed the S&P 500 index. So if you just put your money in the stock market, uh, like, you know, you invested in an index fund, um, you would have done better if you were than if you were investing in hedge funds from 1994. I mean, sort of. Not really. It's like there's a lot of bad hedge funds and there's a lot of bad. There's a lot of hedge funds that, that go under. If you get into a good hedge fund, then Stanley Druckenmiller. Right. Way yeah. back to the beginning of the show. Yeah. That guy posted returns. He did. And so did Cohen. 30 percent for 20 years. Uh, just unbelievably high returns. How did he do it? It couldn't have been because he had access to information that other people didn't have. Because <laughs> that is that is how he did. It. That wouldn't explain uh, it. <laughs> it was, uh, it, he just ran a he ran a criminal enterprise essentially. He was a, he was basically a mob boss in in the sense that the SAC Capital was their business model was insider trading. Right, like you don't have thirty percent returns for twenty years without cheating. So hedge funds do everything they can. And this is how they explain how they get higher rates of return. They they do all of these like crafty tricks to gain what they call edge. Edge is what traders uh, call information that you've obtained legally, uh, but that no one else has. Right. So a lot of it's data mining. Like uh, one example is paying for access to a car manufacturer's inventory so that you can make educated guesses about their earnings prior to the public release of those earnings. Uh, they'll employ spy type tactics like flying drones over lumberyards to see how much stock has piled up. And and they love talking about these creative things that they come up with to get an edge, right? Um, but the the problem is, these are educated guesses, right? Like they are they are based on incomplete information and you're bound to get it wrong a lot of the time. Right? right. And no amount of that kind of research, no matter how much you do, is going to be half as valuable as one person who's an executive of a company exactly. who's like, actually, all of the IP at this company that we are saying is awesome is really just totally crap and it's yeah. about to come out. Well, that's exactly what happened with Cohen. And that's how he, that's how he made uh hundreds of millions of dollars, like 300 million dollars or something in the trade that 
took down his company. Uh, it was with a new Alzheimer's drug, and he got information that the drug had failed in clinical trials before the public got the information. He bet against it and and you know made a ton of money. And uh, but he got they got busted for that, and that's what ended up taking them down. So when you're when you're making these educated guesses, right? Like you're going to get it wrong a lot of the time, and and but there's you're you're using other people's money to invest right and so there's a ton of pressure to not get it wrong there's also a ton of other hedge funds and people can leave your hedge fund and go to another hedge fund if you're not getting returns that are high enough right so like the the competition for edge is so desperate and fierce that even if a hedge fund set out with earnest intentions, right? Like to not do insider trading. There is a tremendous amount of pressure on them to engage in insider trading uh, because otherwise they're going to fail. You're not going to be biking with Lance Armstrong without no. doing some doping. No, that's right. That's right. That's a, I think that's a great analogy, right? You're not going to be able to keep pace with Lance Armstrong if you're not doing some doping. Um, <laughs> and, you know, remembering that hedge funds averaged out over a 30 year period are basically as good as an index fund. The only explanation for how some hedge funds have these tremendous rates of return has to be fierce intelligence. On yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Cohen is so much smarter. I mean, he he actually is smart, right? Like what he what he figured out is that, well, I'll just do a whole bunch of insider trading. If I get caught doing insider trading, what's going to happen? Right. Like uh, I'll insulate myself. Some underlings will I'll have to fire them and maybe they'll get in a little bit of trouble. I might have to pay some fines, but I've already made so much money. Who cares? Right. And and that's exactly what he did. Right. Like he became a billionaire. <laughs> so the 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 term uh, for insider trading information that traders have is black edge. Um, oh, it sounds dirty. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> Um, so Black Edge is the name of this book by uh, Sheila uh, Kolhatkar. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but uh, uh, it's uh, like the definitive guide to Steve Cohen's uh, criminal enterprises. The subtitle of the book is Inside Information, Dirty Money and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. And the word quest is very important in that title because... Uh, Stephen Cohen was not brought down at all uh, by this investigation. Uh, he doesn't, as I said, run SAC Capital. That had to be dissolved. Now he runs something called Refinery 42 or 72 or something like that. But yeah, I mean, he's just living the good life in Flavortown right now. Like he's he's perfectly fine. If you do, if you look up insider trading on Wikipedia, you will find the name Matthew Martoma all over the place. And that's the person who worked for Cohen, who uh, actually got into huge trouble. Is he still in jail? No, he is not in he is not in prison currently. Um, uh, but uh, and, and I'm not really going to get into the deep details of his story. Uh, it is very sad, though, uh, over a number of years. He befriended uh, like this elderly, lonely medical researcher who was heading up a drug trial, sort of like became a second son to him or a son. And I don't know why I said second son, but it became a son to him. And he was estranged from his children, very emotional and like messed up. Uh, and he I mean, this is like over a period of years, you know, uh, uh, integrated himself into this guy's life and then got this information about this Alzheimer's drug out of him. That is reptilian, man. It, it is reptilian. But what's even more reptilian is that that's the whole reason this guy, Matthew Martoma, was hired by Cohen in the first place. Um, oh, wow. He possessed this particular aptitude. 
of like no 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 well yes sort of not not a particular aptitude of um manipulating people but of understanding the um uh the industry uh, that he was investing in. So he, in such a way he knew how to target. He studied bioethics um, and he was, you know, very smart, right? Like uh, he, he even co-authored a paper called Alzheimer's testing at silver years uh, uh, in the Cambridge quarterly of healthcare ethics. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here's how Cohen hires people. He's like, Oh, you know, a bunch of people in this field that I invest in, right? pharmaceuticals he does a lot of trading in there he's like okay I'll, I'll hire you you have a lot of connections and could probably get me inside information and they are hired with a clause in their contract that's basically if you don't generate enough alpha or profit right like in uh, uh then you're going to get fired right like that either you perform or you get fired at this company um and it's this big prestigious company and people make the most money there because they get these giant bonuses and so the message to Martoma and to every other trader is do inside trading here or you will get fired, right? Like the, the only way to generate the kind of profits that he's forcing you to generate is if you if you draw on the connections that you are expressly hired to draw on uh, by Cohen. Like, why is Cohen hiring this specific guy, right? Like, But in this way, Cohen is insulated from a lot of the insider trading that's going on because he doesn't necessarily need to explicitly make the order or know what questions were asked when or who shared information under what context. There are certain situations where he was the guy who got the information, but I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there were, but like, um, but I, I didn't come across any specific instances of that. It's uh, so the way that it's more just creating a culture in which you have to deliver and there's only one way to deliver. Yes. And Cohen would, so Cohen did do the investments himself, right? It wasn't Martoma, although I think Martoma did too. Cohen just pleaded uh, ignorance. He's like, "Oh yeah, Martoma did tell uh, you know send me an email about it or something, but I didn't read it." You know, and like the way that they they would do it at the office was that they would send Cohen an email and say, "We need to talk," right? Or it was some code, right? And th- there was all this stuff in the book about like developing a sort of criminal semiotics, right? Like that, uh, you know, like mafia guys have. Like if you say it one way, it means kill the guy. If you say it another way, it means don't kill the guy, right? Like it, this is uh, how Trump it, does business too. Yeah, yeah. All right. and, and and so they would just send him an email like, "We need to have lunch" or something like that, and that would mean, "Okay, we're going to talk face to face about this insider information that I have." And so that so he was insulated from it in this very simple and straightforward way. But like, yeah, I mean that happens, but. It, like hedge funds are often so blatant and brazen about insider trading. It's it's just banana. So like here's a paragraph I excerpted. Let me read this. Uh, this is from Kolotkar's book um, about Steve Cohen. And it's about how the investigation got started uh, from a phone tap that they had on another uh, guy, the Wall Street kingpin Raj Raj, uh, Raj Ratnam. Uh, so here this is a paragraph about the uh, FBI agents on the wiretap. Uh, okay. So he and the other FBI agents on wire detail were shocked by what they were hearing. Was this normal behavior on Wall Street? Was inside information that easy to get? They had become accustomed to finding corruption in the financial industry, but these interactions were so blatant, so obviously illegal, and seemed to extend in every direction. Each time they discovered one insider trading circle, it would overlap with another, and they'd have a whole new list of suspects to go after. The problem was bigger than Raj. It was a large, complicated network. 
As the agents listened and studied phone records and interview notes, one hedge fund kept coming up, SAC Capital Advisors, right? Um, and so, so like, basically, these FBI agents started to look into insider trading, and they realized that everybody in hedge funds is doing insider trading all of the time, right? right. That, that it's hard to even know who to go after. And, uh, and it's no surprise then that so much of what's going on in hedge fund world is shrouded in secrecy. And right. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And the laws allow them to do that, right? Um, because the laws were written by rich people who have an interest in shielding hedge funds from scrutiny. Um, there's a really just mind-blowing practice that I learned about uh, that, that typifies this, the blatant uh, disregard for for insider trading that they have. Uh, the, this is a common practice now in in security sales. They're called big boy letters, um, and uh, I'll read a definition of what a big boy letter is. It's kind of maybe hard to understand. Big boy letters are agreements between parties to a securities transaction where one party, typically the seller, has material non-public information, like relevant non-public information that it does not want to disclose. But both parties want to complete the transaction and preclude any claims based on the non-disclosure. The signatory is waiving all claims against its counterparty arising out of the non-disclosure, essentially stating, I am a big boy. Uh, so what it is, is you want to enter into a deal. You know that the reason that the person wants to sell or buy this thing is because they have some insider information. You still want to go through with the sale, but you don't want to get in trouble later on if the insider trading ever gets found out. Um, and the seller doesn't want you to be able to sue them if they get caught for insider trading. And so you sign a big boy letter that says, yeah, I know there's probably insider trading going on here, but I'm not going to say anything about it. And I'm not going to sue you if you get busted. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who's a big boy? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. We're all big boys here. Right. Like being mature means, uh, you know, just doing crimes, I guess. Um, but like the other, the other interesting dimension of insider trading, despite like, you know, aside from the fact that it is just part of the common practice of wall street, right? It's just, everybody is, is doing it and that, and, and, and aren't getting caught. Um, like, the other discourse about insider trading is, is it actually bad? Like, and, and that's kind of an interesting question, right? Like, well, what's wrong with insider trading? You know, well, like, I mean, I, the obvious question to ask in response to that is, is it bad for whom? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. OK, so um, so this is what uh, what they're asking. Right. Like, so who is insider trading? bad for people on the losing side of those bets who don't have access to the same information and everyone else who doesn't get to play in the market who doesn't have access to the same information yeah but why is that bad so a rich guy gets richer what's what's the problem i mean i don't get i don't get you know i don't get my payout or like i don't at a certain level i'm more likely to not only lose out on possible earnings but actually lose money if i'm investing in the, the marketplace with inferior information resources, like on balance. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, isn't that like the money's not, the money's coming from somewhere. People are buying and selling these shares. Some people know more. Some people know less. Some people know more. Some people know less. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the, the biggest 
reason that people give, the number one reason that people give for why insider trading is bad is that it erodes market confidence. So uh, what that means is that if regular people like you and me think that uh, there is an elite class of people with information that we don't have, we're going to be disincentivized from participating in the market. For instance, like if you thought that there were a few guys at the racetrack who knew what the outcomes of the horse races were going to be because they were cheating in some way, like, would you bet on the horse races? Like, I, I mean, it, it seems like it, you know, like probably not, right? Like, oh, this is a fixed game, right? Like I'm, I don't have as much information as these other people. And so I'm at a disadvantage, right? Uh, you know, like as a sidebar, just quickly, like there's a a very lively debate among academics about whether or not insider trading should even be illegal. Uh, some people say it's a victimless crime uh, because it's basically rich people taking money from other rich people. Who are these people? Why are why are legal uh, and legal scholars and economists sitting around uh, uh, spending their time arguing that insider trading should actually be legal? And in fact, it's good. Right. Like what incentivizes them to do that kind of research, right? Like one imagines that the conferences they go to must be pretty fancy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, well, it's just also like something out of it. Right. I mean, we just talked about this whole thing last episode. Yeah. It's like this kind of logic is perverse at its core. Like you can take one step backward and see, see it for what it is, why would you create some sort of convoluted ethical argument exactly. that makes no sense to anybody Yeah, that like in your words, it's like, yeah, it's a good idea to sell heroin to three-year-olds. Yeah. You know, I'm, it's, I'm if you really you think about it. Because it's like there, I actually came across an article. Oh, I wonder if I still have the tab open. I came across an article um, that was something like addressing the objection quote, yeah, but it's just wrong. <laughs> in other words, that like people's moral intuition is like, this is cheating, right? Like you're, you're not supposed to do this. And so like these people are trying to come up with like counterintuitive arguments that are- like, When you actually, really think about it. Yes. Ex they're, they're when you really think about it, guys. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, so I mean, I, that that whole debate is really funny. Uh, but But I think the thing that you brought up is like what most people feel is that the problem with it is not really market confidence. It's like, it's that- these are like these are private clubs for rich people where they get to go in and play by different rules and uh, and cheat uh, uh, without getting caught. Right. Uh, or if if insider trading was legal, just, you know, sort of use tools that other people don't have access to uh, to increase their wealth and further consolidate uh, wealth at the in the hands of fewer and fewer people right like hedge funds are machines for consolidating wealth like they make rich right. people richer you have to have over a million dollars to invest to even get in the door in the first place once you get in the door uh the people running the hedge funds are using all kinds of tools that normal investors don't have access to uh and those tools are often illegal um and and like that's what's what's bad about insider trading right is that it consolidates wealth so 
you know, in in uh, in doing you know this research, reading a little bit about insider trading, uh, one of the, one interesting thing I came across, and and you know, Japan is in the news lately for the uh, the Olympics. Uh, uh, Japan was very slow to do anything about insider trading, to pass any laws or to prosecute anybody about it. Um, uh, you know, many many years after other countries started to do it. Uh, why? Well, Japan has the highest inheritance tax in the world at fifty five percent. And the effect of that is that family fortunes typically dissipate within three generations. It might not be like that now, but it was like that as late as the 90s. Um, And so you don't get this calcified concentration of wealth in an ever shrinking portion of the population, right? Like that the as uh, as the inheritance tax keeps getting levied as different generations die and and then of course family trees branch out and the the fortune gets dissipated in that way uh it, it just sort of like goes away right like the concentration probably doesn't happen as much so like there are ways where you could allow some types of insider trading right uh or or allow people to leverage inside information in some way if you didn't allow those people to to close up their wealth in a vault for eternity uh and and just let their you know fail kids uh, uh you know suckle on it forever right like <laughs> Uh, you know, like, but that's what we do, right? And so, you know, we we can't have these machines that further consolidate wealth. Like, we got to get rid of them. We got to liquidate all hedge funds, and we got to have a a big inheritance tax, um, or else you end up with an undemocratic oligopoly where billionaires can hire the national guard to enforce rules that they wouldn't enforce, right? Like that. That's what you end up with. So that's that's what I that's what I have on insider trading. There's a million things you could talk about with Cohen, but I feel like we've hit on some of it already. He owns the Mets, uh, so he's just, he, you know that's pretty new for him. Uh, he's a big art collector. Uh, he, I think he set the record for paying the most for a work of art more than once. Uh, he paid Steve Wynn, the Las Vegas guy. He paid him 150 million for a Picasso. It's like yeah. That is a guy, guy Fieri. Like, I want the most expensive fucking Picasso that they got. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and who's got it? Steve Wynn. Yeah, Steve Wynn's got that. Picasso. Not anymore. Cohen's got it now. Yeah. Um, well, you know, like the problem with with pulling someone as big as Cohen is that you just got to pick and choose and do do what you do. I like what you did with it. You know, you also had Zuckerberg, which was a challenge. And I liked what you did with that segment too. Well, you know, you're you. not going to be able to do it all. You're not going to be able to do it all, but that's what we're going to do uh, with Steve Cohen. He, he does, he does have very, very Guy Fieri style taste in art. Like one of the things he has is a uh, Damien Hirst's the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. Uh, which uh, the title doesn't make any sense. All it, it's a it's a full size tiger shark preserved in formaldehyde in a glass cube. Right? Makes so, sense. Yeah, he might also have that diamond shark. encrusted skull. Isn't oh, that maybe he? Well, he has a blood skull. Uh, uh-huh. He has a he he has a a skull made of carved from frozen blood that has to be uh, kept frozen all the time. I'm sure he doesn't have that skull, but I saw, I saw that and it seemed like that might be something that he would have. (laughs) Oh, the last thing he, he got caught up in the GameStop thing. Um, 
Uh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, his new his new firm, Point Seventy Two, was heavily invested in Melvin Capital, which is the firm that got taken down by the Wall Street Bets subreddit. And so, uh, Cohen's fund actually lost fifteen percent of its value. Uh, so he gave Melvin uh, seven hundred and fifty million dollars um, to to get them back on their feet. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So so that's that's uh, actually cool and good at least. I mean, the one problem with rating him is that there are many, many hours worth of material and history and evidence that we could go through that would affect the the, the rating for him. I mean, I'm I'm going to go ahead and rate him just based on extra textual information that I know about. <laughs> you know? Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I just like you know, we, we only talked about so much about him personally in this segment, but there's a lot, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to Cohen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for for my rating, I think it's it's you know I, we've been making a lot out of uh, out of body counts, right? But, like, um, but we but for me, he is uh, uh, really close to the uh, the heart of of this podcast in the sense that he is he has dedicated his entire life to enriching the already rich. He does nothing but put more money into the pockets of rich people. That's his whole purpose for, for living. Cohen is easily an eight. He might be a nine. Yeah. I, I think eight is a really good call. I think, I think nine, you have to be a, like a little more diabolical, a little more creative. This guy's just like running a criminal enterprise to make rich people richer, right? Like At the highest sucks. possible level. At levels. the highest possible level. Yeah. Yeah. So eight's good. Eight's very high on the scale. Uh, I'm comfortable with that. All right. He's an eight. All right, Joe, who are you talking about today? All right, Chad, uh, the, the billionaire assigned to me for this episode was David Hindawi, okay. founder of the cybersecurity firm Tanium. I don't know if you've ever heard of Tanium. But, nope, uh, never heard of David Hindawi, never heard of Tanium. This is all news to me. I'm excited. As it turns out, I'll be talking a little bit more about his son, Orion, who founded the company with his dad, David, uh, back in 2007. So it's not exactly a, another family segment, but sort of a father-son combo, I guess. Uh, that's heartwarming. <laughs> yeah, it's very sweet. Um, David Hindawi has a, has a slightly more interesting uh, origin story than your average billionaire on our list. It, at this point, David is an American, but he was born in Iraq and then moved to Israel when he was still a kid, served in the Israeli Air Force, and then went on to get a PhD from Berkeley, at which point he he, he founded a series of telecommunications and IT and cybersecurity companies. Mm -hmm. So one of, one of the companies is, the, the name of one of these companies is Big Fix, which he sold to IBM for like $400 million, and Tanium. Uh, which he started with Orion, launched back in uh, 2007, and, and is valued at about $9 billion today. So uh, you never heard of David Hindawi. Probably most people have never heard of David Hindawi. If you're interested in learning more about him, or if you're interested in hearing his voice, <laughs> you'll you'll need to find a way of meeting him in person. Or, or the other option, 
is get together like $100,000 or more so that you can book him for a speaking event through technologyspeakers.com. Mm. where he he has a speaker profile. But as far as I can tell, there's no audio video evidence of his existence anywhere on the open internet. You can find a handful of photographs of him like on Forbes and Bloomberg and on the Tanium website. He's maybe not then the like in in a high demand on the technology speakers website then <laughs> well uh, he's essentially a ghost. I I I have no idea how much in, <laughs> in demand he is. I mean his son Orion's digital footprint looks very, very different. Uh, he is a very visible public figure and has become increasingly visible over the last few years since he became CEO of Tanium. The, there, there are perhaps some reasons for, for his very loud public profile that I'll go into here in a minute. Real quick, though, just to give you some sense of how dramatically different Orion and David's online presences are. If, if you go to David Hindawi's profile on technologyspeakers.com that I was just talking about a, a moment ago. If you scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll find a little tab labeled videos of David Hindawi speaking. Uh, you, you definitely will not find any videos of David Hindawi speaking <laughs> on that tab. However, you will find videos of Orion Hindawi speaking, which seems weird. I don't know why they would label that tab in that way if that were the case, but there you have it. Hmm. So today, Orion Hindawi is 41 years old and worth roughly $2 billion. He attended Berkeley for a short period of time as an undergrad, but he dropped out like after a very short period of time to work for his dad, started learning the family business from a very young age. Uh, Clearly, o Orion has hardcore programming skills and is obviously a, a, a bright guy. He was already doing software development work with his dad as a teenager. He started taking college courses when he was still in high school. And now he he's leading the company and, and Tanium is obviously doing very well. It gets a lot of really, really good press. Uh, it's widely regarded as an innovative company. As they say in the, the venture capitalist world, it's uh, an example of a successful unicorn. Mm. Do, you, do, you, do you know the actual def definition of a unicorn in this context? Uh, I mean, isn't it a company that is worth $1 billion? Uh, it's a privately held startup that's worth more than a billion dollars. Yeah. Anyway, Tanium is in many ways the kind of company that the tech industry loves to celebrate. Mm -hmm. They're doing well. They've grown quickly. They're now a powerful player in the market. They have a number of Fortune 500 companies like Visa and Amazon as customers. It's the kind of company that like is probably likely to make whatever random buzzy list that Forbes or Fortune magazine might decide to publish in any given quarter for companies doing cool things in whatever way. And as far as multi-billion dollar companies go, it has a pretty squeaky clean reputation. Um, wait, oh, oh, hold, hold on a second. Wait, did, did I say, did I say has? Sorry, I should have said had. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they, they definitely got some super horrible press back in 2017. <laughs> I think you said has. <laughs> yeah, no, had. <laughs> uh, like in, in terms of the billionaire type scandals that we talk about on the show, this one is actually relatively tame, but 
nonetheless, you can imagine that Orion must have had a pretty horrible few days back in the spring of 2017 when Bloomberg dropped this scathing expose titled Tanium's Family Empire is in Crisis. Uh, and so basically the, the substance of this reporting was Bloomberg noticed that nine senior executives had left the company within eight months, which is highly unusual in this world. So they're, they're sort of wondering. Seems like a lot. Yeah, That's weird. Let's sniff around, figure out what's going on. A pair of reporters over there did a bunch of interviews with a few dozen Tanium employees and uncovered a couple of things. Uh, the most damning allegation was that there was this thing happening at the company, which people referred to as, quote, Orion's list, or sometimes even people in the nose, Schindler's list, <laughs> where, <laughs> where employees were routinely fired right before their shares in the company were set to vest. Uh, so basically- Kind of an anti-Schindler's list, if you think about it. Schindler, <laughs> like he, he was yeah, helping it's, people, right? It's sort of a misnomer. Yeah. Still <laughs> somehow- like tasteless. <laughs> anyway, I mean, if this is true, it's a it's a pretty deeply shady business practice. There was there was also a lot of reporting that, you know, like Orion would just behave like a jerk on a regular basis. Like, for example, go, uh, calling people fat and ridiculing people in public and and meetings. Wow. He he started doing this thing um, after he officially became a billionaire, where he would commonly remind people that he was on the Forbes billionaire list. <laughs> so, just remember, I'm a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I can't imagine. Um, you know, he would do all sorts of douchey things like roll up to meetings late in the middle and then just glare at people, you know, as the CEO, like intimidate them and then leave early. So, you know, like I have no reason to disbelieve any of this reporting. I should also say that Orion came out and denied uh, most of these accounts. He he <laughs> he did admit to being a little bit like too hard edged in certain situations, which he you know mainly chalked up to the demands of running a really high stress multi billion dollar business. Mm. But he 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 uh, definitely denied firing anyone for any reason other than poor performance. Mm -hmm. And then in the aftermath of the article. It seems like he went on a on a sort of public relations blitz, doing a lot of interviews, going on podcasts and business networks, what have you, trying to get his version of the story out in the world, uh, which, you know, I think has contributed in part to his very visible public profile that I was mentioning earlier. Overall, it looks like his efforts at damage control were pretty effective. As far as I can tell, there hasn't been a lot of follow up reporting on this story. And right now, things at Tanium appear to be going mostly well. So, congrats, Orion. You're gonna go with Orion, not Orion. You ever hear somebody pronounce the the uh, constellation Orion? Never That's done. Amazing. Never heard. I had a high school yeah. teacher who pronounced the Himalayas the Himalayas. The Himalayas. <laughs> well, you came from the land where they pronounce Nike Nike. So that's true. So honestly, that's it for the family. And I did spend a while trying to find more interesting stuff to talk about. There's, there's nothing else that I could find worth dealing with on the, on the show. And I, and I struggled a little bit trying to figure out what else to talk about for this segment. And I, I actually mentioned this to you a couple of weeks ago. One of my first impulses 
given that we're talking about the cybersecurity industry, was to do a hard pivot and just spend the whole segment talking about John McAfee. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the John McAfee story. R.I.P. Is truly insane. Yeah. And since we released our last episode, John McAfee, founder and creator of the ubiquitous McAfee antivirus software, died by a apparent suicide in a Barcelona prison. Apparent? You're a McAfee truther? <laughs> I mean, he, he's probably alive. Honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like 50-50. I would not be at all surprised if he's actually alive. Just a quick recap for those people who are unfamiliar with the insane McAfee saga. Uh, I'm just going to speed through several decades of his life. He 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 founded the antivirus software company in the late 80s, made a ton of money, then spent a while, among other things, stylizing himself as an enlightened yoga guru in the mountains of Colorado, during which time he somehow burned through like $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> And then before going completely broke, moved down to Belize, where he hired a bunch of local gang members to be part of his like elite private security force for his private compound and was living, living like a maniac down there with like a, a whole rack of girlfriends. And then ultimately... He does like weird drugs, like, like crocodile and stuff. Like just, just like, like he does like drugs that you've never heard of. Right. Like uh, probably. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he's like pretty obviously out of his mind a lot of the time. And some of the things like I, I wasn't even going to mention this on the show, but like they, all of those girlfriends are on record being like McAfee's main thing that he was like super, super into was uh coprophilia. That was his main deal. <laughs> oh, oh boy, he yeah. he's uh he's in a different place. So he he ultimately got into this serious beef with his neighbor who lived next to him or when one of his houses on on the beach, and this is what people have probably heard about if they've heard about anything. I, I can only assume that there there'd been tension simmering between the the two of them for quite some time, but the inciting incident was that McAfee had this pack of ferocious dogs that he would let run wild on the beach and that he refused to rein in in any way. And then so after confronting him about the dogs a bunch of times and McAfee not doing anything about it, McAfee's neighbor apparently just decided to take matters into his own hands and snuck out in the middle of the night one night and poisons all of McAfee's dogs. McAfee wakes up finds all his dogs are dead, freaks out. And then all evidence seems to suggest that he- John he, Wick scenario. He, he hired <laughs> one of the gang members who was a part of his security force to murder his neighbor. Neighbor turns up dead. All law enforcement is like looking directly at McAfee. <laughs> <laughs> McAfee flees to Guatemala. McAfee has like a mouthful of shit. He's like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he flees to Guatemala and then through a series of negotiations is ultimately granted safe passage back to the United States, at which point 
like flash forward a few years, it's now 2016. He goes on to run for president of the United States <laughs> as a libertarian, somehow actually coming in second in the national libertarian <laughs> primary behind Gary Johnson, which you'll, you remember Gary Johnson, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So just right behind him, McAfee wanted for murder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be really fun to have a national argument about whether it was uh, constitutional for a president to be extradited to Belize. <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, that could have been a cool way for the 2016 uh, uh, election to have gone. I mean, the the, the person who the, the most obvious analog in popular culture to McAfee, as far as I can tell, is Joe Exotic. They seem like they're running very similar sorts of programs. Yeah. Yeah. Like in a lot of self-promotion and and yeah, they've, they've learned how to beat, they, they live like these insane lives. They're sociopaths. They do awful things to people all the time, but they've learned how to manipulate the media in such a way that they can perpetuate their narrative up to a point. They just step over the line so egregiously that ultimately their whole thing just explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, in the months before McAfee's incarceration and suicide, he had been living in what all of the articles are are, are now describing as a quote ghost hotel in Spain, <laughs> which was yeah, which was owned. I looked into this a little bit. Yeah. So it was it was owned by a Russian oligarch who had installed a giant laser on the roof, which evidently with the idea that. This giant laser would throw people off the scent of this right. giant Bitcoin mining operation he had going on inside the hotel. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, la- the laser was like a facade. Right. Uh, the idea for some being, reason. like, if people got suspicious of all the energy that this hotel was using, he could be like, yeah, of course it uses a lot of energy. We have a giant laser on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> So smart. Which is so crazy. It's definitely not because we have a secret huge crypto mining operation going on in here. It's the laser. You know? <laughs> it's our completely legal laser. <laughs> the, the thing that's just like triply confounding and perplexing about the whole thing is that, yeah, okay, like that's a really weird kind of decoy. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like, it's not like the crypto mining operation was even necessarily illegal anyway. It was just like he didn't want people to look into it. The the layers are just bizarre. Maybe there's like tax breaks for <clears throat> electricity for businesses or something. Who knows? Probably yeah, dumb shit. I'm sure there was a reason. I will. Uh, I will say that uh, I went on to. I think it was TripAdvisor. I think I sent it to you. And I was reading reviews of the hotel and they are incredible. Um, there it's, it's not good. Uh, it's not a good hotel. Maybe we can, we can link to that. It's a funny, f- funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all of this is to say, uh, I went deep on McAfee. <laughs> I, read, <laughs> I read a ton about him. I watched the Showtime documentary about him, which is absolutely insane. Ultimately, I, I decided not to focus on him in the segment because I guess a few reasons. I mean, one, McAfee wasn't actually a billionaire, you know, and we do have a code on the show. But two, <laughs> it seemed like sort of cheap and sensational, although I did just get some mileage out of some of that cheap, sensational stuff here in the last couple of minutes. Some of it is just too juicy not to say 
anything about, but I, you know, <laughs> it didn't necessarily seem like it, it should be the substance of the, of the segment. And then the, the main reason really is that there's so much information out there on McAfee. There are so many better places that you can go to learn about him and his, his crazy story than our podcast. So I'm going to leave it there for now. I'm going to use the remainder of the segment to just have a conversation with you. It might be short, but however long it goes is cool. Uh, uh, about cybersecurity as a form of of critical infrastructure. So regular listeners will know that we like to talk about infrastructure here on Zero Sum Empire. It's one of the prominent themes of the show. And I think uh, cybersecurity offers us an opportunity to talk about uh, some interesting things along these lines. So my plan is uh, I'm going to float out a couple of these ideas, ask a couple of questions, see where it all goes. Maybe something interesting will happen. Sound good? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm going to start out by just pointing out the obvious fact that at this point in technological history, even those of us who are who are very dumb about computers know that cybersecurity threats are a big deal. We hear and talk about cybersecurity all the time. We know that hackers are constantly hacking everywhere across <laughs> the globe. <laughs> they definitely do. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's like whether it's the Equifax breach or, you know, Russia's cyber espionage campaign. Here's a here's a good cybersecurity uh uh thing. Did you see that the the Apple phone now uh has I, I think this is new. I just or maybe I just never noticed it. Um but there is a place it's really hard to find. Uh, there's a place in in the the settings now where you can see which of your passwords uh, have been, uh, or which of the sites that you have passwords for uh, saved for have been uh, breached in a hack. And it's like huh. I have like 27 security risks where whoa passwords that I have have been found in in hacks. That's crazy. <laughs> like, no, I gotta so go look every, like everything. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool tip. I'm doing bad at cybersecurity, apparently. I think the main thing you gotta do is two factor. If you're doing two factor all the time, you're doing better I think than most I'm people. Rocking the two factor, yeah. You know, the, the point of all this is we all basically know that computers run the world. And if these these computer systems aren't secure, which, you know, as you were pointing out, a second ago, uh, they usually aren't, you know, or aren't as secure as they're supposed to be. Bad actors with hacking skills can just come in and wreak havoc. So, okay, I guess what I'm interested in thinking broadly about is what it means or what it feels like to live in a world where so many aspects of our lives are vulnerable to cyber attacks. And there, there are different ways of, of thinking about this. Obviously, some people are more attuned to the problem than other people and your individual level of vulnerability and exposure is to, to some extent determined by how immersed you are in a certain technological milieu or how deeply connected you are to like, you know, what we're all now calling the internet of things. How plugged in are you? The more plugged in you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more aware you are that you might be vulnerable, et cetera. But I think you can make a loose speculative argument about fundamental shifts that have uh, happened here in the modern industrialized world, you know, things that we've witnessed here over the past, you know, four or five decades. So just to offer a little perspective, one, one quick an anecdote here, this, this is a anecdote I'm drawing from 
Fred Kaplan's book, Dark Territory, The Secret History of Cyber War. So the first official federal level cybersecurity directive, or, or one of the very first here in the United States, wasn't developed until the uh, the, the mid-80s. And the, the thing that precipitated its development was that Ronald Reagan one night was just hanging out at Camp David and he had some spare time and he just happened to sit down and watch the film War Games star, sure. st- starring Matthew Broderick. I've seen that like 15 times. So some of our listeners maybe haven't. The basic setup of the movie is that Matthew Broderick plays a, a teenage computer geek who accidentally hacks into the mainframe computer at NORAD, the uh, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, and almost sets off World War III, <laughs> you know, sort of un- unwitting. Yeah. So Reagan watches the film and then goes back to his generals at the Pentagon and is like, so I just watched war games <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, is this a thing? Could this happen? <laughs> you know, and people in the room sort of look at each other and like, uh, we'll look into it. They poke around for a couple of days, ask some people who, who know about this stuff and then come back uh, to Reagan and are like, uh, yeah, we asked uh, the experts about this and uh, yeah, yep. Actually, it's a thing. This could definitely happen. <laughs> Can't believe we didn't think about this before. Yeah. We should have probably watched War yeah. Thanks, uh, thanks, Mr. President, for bringing this to our attention. <laughs> so, you know that that like set off a chain reaction of people in at the federal level starting to like think closely about how to address some of these vulnerabilities, which becomes a multi-decade problem. You know, since then we've come a long way as a, as a society in terms of our awareness of cybersecurity threats, as I was saying. So I guess in, in setting up the, the conversation I want to have with you, Chad, I thought I'd lean on the German sociologist Ulrich Beck, who I know you're you're familiar with. I'm sort of I, yeah. I'm 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 pretty sure less familiar with his work than you are, but I have a handle on some of his most influential arguments, I think. And Beck is probably most well known for the idea of a risk society. Which, as as I understand it, basically describes a, a society, our society, that's living now in an- anticipation of looming catastrophe. So, in other words, there's a period of industrial and technological development where civilization is kind of zooming along, more or less oblivious to the consequences of its own actions. Right. But then at a certain point, people start becoming aware of the of the unintended consequences of industrialization. So like, you know, like DDT can cause cancer, nuclear power plants can can melt down. So the term risk society describes society at the point when it develops this sort of reflexive awareness of its own situation. And as a result is, is characterized by feelings of anxiety and insecurity and, and, and fear. Yeah. You know, Beck, Beck also points out that the production of wealth in the risk society is deeply connected to the systems that both produce and are designed to manage these risks. So is that, is that right? As far as you can tell in a general way? Yeah, I I think, Absolutely. Right. Um, and <clears throat> for me, like the, the, the most interesting thing is, right. Um, uh, we also develop all of these, um, uh, 
modeling techniques uh, for the future, right? So we become conscious of our unintended consequences. Uh, and then we become conscious of the fact that future actions will have unintended consequences that we uh, can't plan for, right? Uh, and then it also turns out that the world is such a complex place that even if we know ahead of time that we should consider the potential unintended consequences of our actions, we can't really account for them, right? Like Because you don't really know what the consequences of your actions are ultimately uh, going to be, right? And I think, you know, one example that I think about is like geoengineering, right? Like, uh, um, uh, we, we, you know, we understand that climate change is a problem because we have these computer models that extrapolate uh, out from current circumstances to tell us that the future is going to be problematic from a climatological standpoint, right? And, um, and, and then we say, well, we have to do something about that, right? Um, but what do we do? Like, well, this is the situation that we're in. We're not really doing that much. Uh, we kind of know what we have to do, but even if we executed what we know we have to do, there might be unintended consequences to those actions uh, that we can't account for that could make the problem worse, right? And so we get put into this situation where consciousness of like where more information does not extinguish risk it only makes us more conscious of risk right like it only makes us so like we get these new forms of anxiety uh that that uh, attend to uh uh consciousness of risk and so when we're talking about living in risk society we're also talking about a different kind of anxiety right so and it may be a simple example is like oh you you could imagine that like you could be you know it's like 1840 and you have these steam engines that are pumping out all this black smoke or whatever you're like hell yeah look we're this is progress this is triumphant and this that's how people actually thought but now when you see a coal burning train going by and pumping out a bunch of black smoke you're like oh my god all you think of is climate change all you think of is anxiety right right um and that's what's really interesting about it to me and it's also why uh tim burton's batman is the only good batman movie because it really cued into that that kind of risk uh that kind of risk anxiety that we feel uh in in contemporary society uh uh like uh, in what way well, the the Joker's plan, uh, the the chaos that he caused in the city, the Jack Nicholson Joker, uh, was to hide chemical constituents in consumer products like toothpaste and juice and cereal and just like none of them would kill you in isolation, right? So like if you um, if you just ate the cereal, you would be fine, or if you just used the toothpaste, you would be fine. But if you combined a certain cereal and a certain toothpaste uh you would die if you combined a certain juice <laughs> with you know like yeah. that it was this and so batman solved the problem by using this supercomputer to develop a uh a representation a, a network of the connections so that you knew which pro so people could know which products not to combine like that that is the the batman fantasy like batman is not real in the real world and neither is the solution to risk society right like we all just live in the world before batman shows up with a supercomputer where we're like ah <laughs> oh, fuck if are there bpas in this if i have these bpas and i eat sausages am i gonna die or yeah or whatever right, like yeah. like i mean those thoughts go through everybody's head all day long every day right is this thing that i'm currently doing contributing to this problem that i want to avoid and and um and like that i think to me like that's a predominant form of anxiety and and that's kind of like what it means to live in late modernity is that like everything's a potential threat all of the time but it's never like totally 
clear. It's not like a, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> you know, is butter good or bad? You know, like, should I, should I, maybe if I eat butter, but if I have butter and diet Coke, maybe that's bad or something or, you know, like, you know what I'm saying? But yeah. Those are a bunch of super interesting thoughts. And in some ways you may have already answered the question that I'm still in the process of setting up. And so if, if there's nothing more to talk about, that's cool. But I wanted to, to quickly go back to this idea of infrastructure, maybe just mention, uh, you know, there's a, there's a huge infrastructure bill working its way through Congress right now. So the term critical infrastructure has been in the news a lot recently. And uh, yeah. when, when we hear the term critical in- infrastructure, we tend to think of transportation and oil pipelines and water supply and electricity and all of these sorts of things. But yeah. as, as we all know now today, all of these critical infrastructures have over the past few decades come to be controlled by another sort of umbrella infrastructure, yeah. arguably the most critical infrastructure. A superstructure of infrastructure. Yeah, exactly, which, which is com- <laughs> computer networks. And so I guess what I'm interested in thinking about, and, yeah. and which in a weird way you started to talk about with, the, with your Batman example, is I guess first from an infrastructural risk perspective, are, are we as a society in a categorically different situation than we've ever been in before? So, so meaning like critical infrastructures have always overlapped and intertwined with each other in all of these ways. You, you need roads to uh, install electricity. You need water to survive, to do anything. In the modern developed world, you, you can't really do anything without electricity either. So c- certainly there would be no computer systems without electricity. I, I guess what I'm asking is, are we witnessing a rupture moment in the development of of infrastructural technology, or is it just sort of an extension of, of things that we've seen before? And then, you know, my second related question is how is our, our burgeoning awareness as a society of like looming cybersecurity threats? How is this affecting culture? Is there a different sort of anxiousness emerging and permeating society in, in this, in this moment? Again, I think you already spoke to these questions significantly a moment ago, but I don't know if you have any other thoughts. Yeah, to maybe that. just the anxiety one, but like, I mean, that, I, I really like the idea that like, what well, you know, what automating the functions of critical infrastructure has done is to sort of introduce a new and and highly vulnerable layer of critical infrastructure on top of the already existing critical infrastructure. Right. right. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, it's very weird. It's like, uh, um, vulnerabilities multiplied. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to come up with an analogy, but I can't, um, you know, this might be a case where a, a quantity, you know, if a quantity increases sufficiently, it becomes a new quality type of thing. Right. Like the, you can think about like the germ theory of disease, right? Like you don't need the germ theory of disease to develop um, a set of techniques for avoiding germs. It's very easy to, you know, not, I guess not easy, but like it's very uh, possible that people people could develop the idea that if you wash your hands more, you get sick less uh, without having a germ theory of disease. Once you understand that there are germs in the world, you might become marginally better at protecting yourself from them. But the main effect is now that you live in, now you live in a world where there are these invisible critters who are out to get you all of the time. Right. right? Like, yeah. and, and that, like that to me is what, 
what living in risk society is about. It's just that instead of being natural like germs, they become technological, right? Uh, that the the it's sort of like there's these ever present but invisible systems that may or may not kill us with electrical waves or mercury in our food or uh, or whatever that you, you know? kind of that you kind of vaguely understand, but like 99% yeah. of people don't really understand, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you fully assumed the burden of, uh, of the risks that we're faced with on a daily basis, trying to avoid chemicals and, and waves and, uh, and gases and whatever, and whatever, right. That are, that are going to affect you. Um, like you can't, right. You're, you're all of your life would be taken up with that. Right. Um, so, but do you think the, the cyber element, the, the reliance on computer networks just sort of puts that on steroids, you know, like if everything is just like behind screens and in clouds and coded, it's just that much more impossible to begin, like even trying to fathom. I guess, I mean, to come back to cybersecurity, like. Yeah, like that's just, it's just, it's a whole nother, it's not like more information about stuff that we already know uh, is, is causing us anxiety. It's a whole new class of stuff to be worried about, right? People getting your information, right? People getting your passwords. Like that's all, like no one, no one ever had to really worry about that before the internet. It's also right? just such like, a weird like medium of exposure, you know, like one of the terms that I think is interesting to think about in this context is the, the people talk about in, in cybersecurity all the time is the back door, <laughs> you know, there's a new back door to our lives, <laughs> you know, that can constantly yeah. be access. You know, it's like you sort of think about like what's unconsciously eating away at you. You want to feel safe. You want to feel secure. You want to feel like the, your, the, the, the boundaries of your home are, are intact. You know, you, you want to lock the doors at night, you know, and the, the idea that there's like always some way that someone is going to reach their hand you know, through the wires <laughs> and grab something that's yours. I don't know. It's something interesting to think about, but like, I do think that Consciousness of risk changes uh, the way that we kind of relate to the world and other people. Uh, we start to evaluate things in different ways. Yeah. Through the lens of anxiety. I guess we still have to rate the Hindawis. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, not too not too high, I don't think. I mean, uh, remembering that a one is, you know, being a more or less responsible corporate citizen, but nevertheless, your fortune should be liquidated because we ha- shouldn't have billionaires in the first place. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're not that high. I like a two. That's what I think, too. Well, thanks, everyone, for hanging with us to the end of the show. Regular listeners will know that uh, now is the time where we pick our billionaires that we will be researching for next episode. So the way that we do this is that Chad has a random billionaire selector wheel that he spins to determine randomly who uh, who we're going to talk about. Chad, do you have the selector dialed up? I do. You want to go ahead and roll it? Yes.
it's way down the list. Uh, 17 from the bottom. Oh, but Joe, I think you're going to be very excited. And I think you're going to want to take this one. Who is it? It is rap mogul Jay-Z. Oh, shit. All right. I'll take Jay-Z. <laughs> All right. Uh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, can, I, didn't, I didn't foresee this day coming. Yeah. Okay. I'll take Jay-Z. All right, next one, number 323 in the middle of the pack. Uh, scrolling down here. Ah, I've heard this guy's name. I know who. Uh, John Katsimatidis. Katsimatidis. Uh, who is this guy? I know who he well, Maybe I don't. Psh, I don't know. Oil, supermarket chain. I, I'm, my head is already spinning. I cannot believe that I've been assigned Jay-Z. <laughs> like, <laughs> I didn't think this All was right. possible. All right. I'll take John uh, Katsimatidis. Uh, I swear I've heard John Katsimatidis' name uh, recently. I thought I think he might have been in the news. I don't know. I'm excited to take a look at it, even though it's oil, real estate, and grocery store chains. Uh uh, he should be an interesting one. He's an old timey guy. Okay. I'm looking forward to next episode. Um, it's going to be fun again. All, all of our listeners out there. Thank you so much for being with us here. If you get a chance to like or subscribe or write a review, that's always really helpful for us. That's all I got. Chad, any, any, any final words? No, I think. We're all good. right. Stay safe out there, everybody. See you next time. Bye-bye.